Hello, and welcome to episode 83 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We are here today with David Moon, delegate of District 20 in Montgomery County, Maryland. David, how are you? Excellent. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. The first question I'd like to ask you is what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? So I'm currently serving in the Maryland House of Delegates uh, and I represent Tacoma Park and Silver Spring in Montgomery County. That's widely regarded as probably the most liberal legislative district in the state um, and perhaps on the East Coast. And so uh, I think a lot of the work I've, been, I've undertaken in the General Assembly, I think, really reflects the grassroots activist streak uh, that runs through the voters in my district. Um, I'm on the House Judiciary Committee, and so a lot of the work we've been focusing on the last two years is related to criminal justice reform, uh, and we're really trying to be responsive to the sentiment that maybe the tough-on-crime policies of the past few decades mm-hmm. uh, have not actually yielded any positive results. So uh, that's been a huge focus. And part of the goal there, you know, to put this in a broader context, is you know, the U.S. now has the world's largest prison population, more than China, which has uh, billions of uh, residents. And so you know, when you start to look at how it could be that the land of the free... Uh, incarcerates so many more people than the rest of the world, you really start to unravel a lot about American uh, culture and politics. There's uh, race discrimination and class disparities and untreated mental health uh, issues. There's substance abuse. Um, There's just uh, uh, tons of deep, deep social problems that really get to uh, why these folks are in prison. But, you know, we started asking... Recently, should they be there? Is mm-hmm. this is this the right move? And so, why are they there? Well, you have to understand. So, a lot of people think when you're looking at the prison population, you're talking about the worst of the worst. Those are the people that we put in a cage: rapists well, and murderers and things like that. Before we go any further, can we define a difference between jail and prison? Sure. Jail is uh, usually going to be a local detention facility. Um, you might have people there who are awaiting trial. Uh, or they're there for very minor offenses. Isn't the jail, uh, the definition of a jail, a location that incarcerates people between 0 and 364 days, and anything from 365 onwards is a prison? There you go. <laughs> okay. So we're talking about prisons or jails here? Both. Okay. Uh, I'm talking about both. And what you'll find, uh, if you look at Maryland and probably any other state, is that, uh, in fact, the... Uh, incarcerated population is not the worst of the worst. There are, you know, probably uh, between 50 and 60 percent of the uh, incarcerated either have an undiagnosed or untreated mental health issue Hmm. uh, or a substance abuse issue, and oftentimes those uh, overlap. And so, you know, let's be realistic here. I, I hear plenty of stories about waiting lists for substance abuse treatment centers uh, on places like the Eastern Shore, um, waiting lists for mental health facilities. And so those who do not have a, a easy social network mm-hmm. to rely on mm-hmm. when bad things are happening, uh, those who might not be well-resourced, um, and, you know, there are those who are, in fact, committing crimes, but 
you know, the reality is, you know, our infrastructure uh, or lack thereof mm-hmm. on mental health and substance abuse, I think, has a lot to do with how people end up in prison instead of uh, somewhere else. So a few questions. One, just to be clear, is there anyone in the criminal justice system in Maryland who needs to remain in prison? Is there one person? Oh, yeah, of course. Yes. Of course. Okay. So what you are arguing is that many people in the criminal justice system shouldn't be there. That is correct. That, in fact, when you're talking about substance abuse, uh, that should be looked at as a public health issue, not a uh, something that the law enforcement community should be the frontline workers for. So you're, you're basically differentiating among different populations within the criminal justice system, saying some ought to be where they are and some oughtn't to be where they are. Now, my question for you is, how, since you mentioned um, uh, substance abuse rehabilitation centers, do you have any sense of the annual cost of putting someone through a rehab center for a year? How many years a typical person might need to... Um, uh, recover from uh, an addiction, and then similarly, how many years that person might alternatively spend in a prison, and at what annual cost? So the uh, the cost of incarcerating someone is probably you know averages thirty forty thousand dollars in Maryland for low, medium, or high security. That's just the statewide average. Statewide you know, average is about. $40,000 a year. Yeah. And for how many years is an average conviction for drug possession charges? Well, it depends. So on the books, uh, you have um, a maximum penalty of four years incarceration. We just changed this, but so most of the folks there, they were charged under the old regime. So the maximum penalty was up to four years in prison for simple possession of anything, mm-hmm. uh, except for marijuana now. But uh, every other drug could come with up to four years. And so, but there's, you know, look... People on their first offense, they're generally not going to be doing time, um, and maybe not even for their second offense. What starts to happen, though, is that, you know, when the judges and prosecutors uh, decide not to throw the book at them and put them in jail for a long time, Mm -hmm. they're usually put on conditions of parole or probation. And this means um, don't hang out with known gang members. Uh, Check in with your supervisor once every... And how likely is it that they're able to remain clean? Well, see, this is the interesting thing. Uh, Most of the new prison admissions, or sorry, I think it might be like a third of the new prison admissions in Maryland, Mm -hmm. are not people who committed new crimes. They are people who violated a term of parole or probation. Now, are the terms too strict, or are these people... Uh, what, what leads to their recidivism? Which, for our listeners, recidivism means to return to prison after having already been there. I wouldn't say that they're too strict, actually. I mean, in fact, uh, if someone has a substance abuse issue, we might want to know if they're continuing to use substances. Um, You know, we want them to be looking for a job. We want them to check in with a supervisor. Uh, What what is too strict is the idea that if they break these terms, we will be sending them back into prison. I mean, we had a case of one gentleman who, uh, from Baltimore City, he... Uh, had a drug dealing charge from many, many years ago uh, and was now out uh, under terms of uh, probation. Mm -hmm. And he turned up uh, with a marijuana possession charge and the judge reinstated a 20-year prison sentence Hmm. on this gentleman. I mean, that's the kind of insanity, I think, (laughs) where it's really difficult to see 
what possible policy outcome or good to the world we are creating with that sort of mindset. Is there a link to poverty and uh, this recidivism? So actually, the interest is, so this last year, uh, the Pew Foundation funded a uh, one-year study of Maryland's sentencing structure, prison system, uh, everything. They did a top-to-bottom look, and they worked with uh, lawmakers, the governor's office, law enforcement officials, public defenders, civil liberties advocates. Uh, it was a very um, methodical study. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we found is that the uh, prison terms associated with some of these nonviolent drug offenses actually increased the likelihood that someone uh, would engage in recidivism and end up back in the system. So you're saying that if they hadn't gone to prison, they would have less of a chance of engaging in behaviors in the future that would lead them back to prison. That's right. And part of the reason is, you know, prison's not really the place you're going to get substance abuse treatment. It's not really the place you're going to go to get mental health treatment. And you didn't say, how, what was the annual average cost of substance abuse treatment? Oh, well, that I don't know. Uh, but what I will tell you Would is, you say it's less than $40,000 a year? Sure. Um, and and part, of the, part of the reason is you're not going to be continuously, uh, you know, housed in some treatment center mm-hmm. the way you would be if you were in prison. Oh, you know? so you that's show an, up. That's an ongoing... Well, it depends. There's different models, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's not one size fits all. Some, and some people are going to lapse and take longer years, maybe. Um, but let's say you didn't care about the welfare of Marylanders. And let's say you didn't care about the welfare of the incarcerated individuals. And in this hypothetical situation, let's say there was only one thing you cared about. And that was making sure that taxpayers of Maryland got the greatest return for their dollar and spent the least amount on criminal justice possible. Would you say it would be cheaper to send nonviolent drug offenders to drug rehab for a few years or those same individuals to prison for more years? It sounds like the former and that it would be more cost effective regardless of the effect on the individual or how much you might care about them. And regardless of any compassion you might have, it may be less expensive to send them for two years to drug rehab than four years to prison, which is more expensive every year anyway. Is that true? In fact, that is one of the key reasons why we now have a lot of right-wing support for criminal justice reforms. Um, You know, we come at this from different perspectives. I look at incarceration as a civil liberties, uh, evidence-based policy-making sort of frame, but the right has been looking at this from a taxpayer accountability sort of frame. And, in fact, they, they are the first, they have been among the first and loudest to argue that uh, this sort of spend, rampant spending on the prison system when there's no evidence to show that has put a dent in substance abuse, uh, that that is actually a good use of tax dollars. Mm-hmm. And so, so as we scrubbed down our uh, criminal code this year, uh, we are anticipating millions and millions of dollars saved, and we're going to divert those funds that used to go to prison. Over time, they're going to slowly be shifted into... Uh, re-entry services and substance abuse treatment and other things that have a much clearer link to um, success in this world. And part of the reason, you know, so pe- just so people understand why it is uh, that prison can be such an ineffective tool for uh, people who have issues, is that, you know, when you come out of prison, 
for years, we haven't really cared what happens to people when, upon release. Mm-hmm. And what, what we're seeing is that um, not only do they have, you know, uh, terms of parole and probation that they have to stick to um, that could land them back, uh, but they, their criminal record itself, even for a petty nonviolent offense, would render them unable to be employed anywhere because what employer would want to hire someone with a known record? And so, so if they can't find employment, then they have no means of feeding themselves, medicating themselves, and that the only thing that they know how to do in order to survive is to return to crime. So you're saying that there aren't very many good transitional uh, employment programs or halfway programs for individuals leaving prison, which leads me to my next question, which is, do you have any thoughts? So there's a certain program um, out there called, which is bringing education, especially higher education, into the criminal justice system. You have individuals receiving high school and college and, and advanced degrees in prison. Then when they leave, I've heard that recidivism rates are, are lower than 10% for that population, meaning if they are well-educated in prison, then they have job skills that they actually can use to find their way and avoid going back to prison. Can you speak on that? And, and talk about potentially any benefits to taxpayers that may result from that program. That's right. I mean, a lot of times the sort of rhetoric we would hear about doing anything that might be uh, in the benefit of people incarcerated, they would always say, well, why are we rewarding them for their criminal behavior? Uh, and again, if you want to take this from a strict uh, cost-benefit analysis to tax dollars, like... We're not rewarding them, we're rewarding ourselves because, in fact, this is a cost savings in the long run to not have someone, uh, you know, who is, has no economic opportunity when they are released and basically uh, all the incentives are pulling them back towards uh, a life of crime. Do you have any sense of how expensive a college education course might be for an inmate in prison? That I do not know. Would you say it's more or less than $40,000 a year? Oh, it's got to be less than it's got to be less because, because state tuition at a university is less than that, right? That's right. So if you're thinking about adding college tuition for a few years in prison and your return is that they don't come back for another five or ten years for a, a, an offense um, at a cost of $40,000 a year, but instead are able to be productive tax-paying members of society, then you might quite rapidly realize a return on your investment in education in the criminal justice system without ever having any concern for the welfare of the prisoner, but only saying we don't want to pay to incarcerate him again. Is that true? That is 100% correct. So let's talk a little bit about David Moon. Okay. Are you an attorney? I am. And why is it that you... um, were placed by Speaker Michael Bush of the House of Delegates on the Judiciary Committee two years ago when you first entered the House of Delegates? I actually uh, requested to be put on the Judiciary Committee. Um, Part of the way I think about policy advocacy is I like to work on issues that are timely, ripe, and at a point in their evolution where they can actually have an opportunity to pass. 
And so, you know, if you look back on my... Um, well, sorry, for our listeners, when Delegate Moon uh, refers to a piece of legislation passing, what he means is it has passed on uh, through a vote in both the House and the Senate and has been signed into law by the governor or has passed into law without his signature. But what he's talking about is taking a piece of proposed law, which is called a bill, and turning it into actual law. That is what he refers to when he says passing. Okay? That's right. Um, and basically, I don't like to waste my time. So if it doesn't look like something's passing, uh, I'm probably not going to spend too much time uh, But how many years it. does it often take for a piece of legislation to become law? Well, you can, sense, you can suss those things out. You do have to lay the ground. Like right now, I'm beginning to lay the groundwork for a universal child care push. Mm-hmm. That's going to take many, many years. But there are little pieces of it you can put in place beforehand. Like, Do you have I'm, an example? Yeah, I'm trying to get uh, incentivized creation of more child care centers, just broadly, because... And would that go through the Judiciary Committee? No. This so, is a county delegation bill. So you have an interest in pushing forth a piece of legislation that will not pass through your committee. Is that common? Uh, well, actually, so most of the bills I've passed did not go through <laughs> my committee. Interesting. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, you know, it, we tend to work on... Uh, bills on our committee primarily, and I had, you know, the largest number of bills were obviously on the Judiciary Committee where I serve, um, but, you know, sometimes you'll identify a hole in public policy uh, or a gap where something could be done, um, and if no one else is working on it, then, uh, or, or wants to work on it, then, you know, oftentimes we will introduce legislation in committees we're not on. Hmm. So talk a little bit more about um, child care. You said that you are interested in working on pieces of legislation that have a likelihood of passing. Of course, as Jamie Raskin often says, he's a former uh, colleague of yours, um, he has often said, I don't want to be in the political center, I want to be in the moral center, and he references how marriage equality was perceived as having no chance of passing uh, a number of years ago, and of course it's law across the nation now. Um, and there are many things in history that had purportedly no chance of passing that later became law. So how do you assess if something is likely to become uh, passed in the future, and if it has no chance, um, how do you stack that up against previous pieces of legislation that supposedly had no chance and later passed? Well, look, we had campaign finance reform happen in Congress nationally twice in the last hundred years, once during Richard Nixon and once during the financial scandals that uh, happened under the George W. Bush administration. All along the way, you had to have advocates sitting there uh, pushing for campaign finance reform, common cause, gutting it out year after year, uh, but understanding that it only happened twice. And, you know, you have to be able to assess your odds, I think, in that manner. But the reason you do that sort of uh, laying the groundwork is that when you do have a major scandal mm-hmm. that, cr- that creates a moment where uh, politicians feel they must respond mm-hmm. to the public pressure on something, uh, then you have to be ready and ram it through. So luck favors to prepared. That is, I, I would say 100% that you have to have some basis for it. If you get caught off guard and you're not ready when a moment emerges, then uh, you know, you've really missed an opportunity. I mean, that's certainly the case with criminal justice reform now, where the pendulum has finally swung back after what you know, four and a half decades of uh, this rampant drug war and ramp up in our 
prison population. And I've been telling all my colleagues, like, this is our moment. We have to get as many of these reforms in right now before the pendulum might swing, swing in another direction uh, down the road. How did you ever first become aware of and interested in criminal justice reform, the war on drugs, and its intersection with mental health care and substance abuse? Well, my path down criminal justice reform started <clears throat> with probably the most obvious issue you could think about, and that's a death penalty. When uh, I was in college, I interned at the ACLU. Uh, and one of For our listeners, what does that mean? The American Civil Liberties Union. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the projects I was working on was uh, death penalty abolition at the time. And so this was really my first window into... Uh, the idea that there might be something wrong with our criminal justice system. And, you know, for me, just the concept that the government would assert its right to kill people mm-hmm. uh, was, you know, morally problematic. And, you know, that led me to start working down the road with the Innocence Project. And the Innocence Project is an organization that once DNA uh, testing became um, widespread in the uh, legal community, mm-hmm. they would go and investigate claims of innocence by people who are incarcerated uh, and go back, investigate the cases, and try to find biological material that could be tested. And as we've seen now, there have been hundreds of people uh, released from prison now uh, who were wrongfully incarcerated and, in fact, were innocent. The very first case uh, was in Maryland. It was this uh, gentleman... Bloodsworth. Um, yeah, Kirk, Kirk Bloodsworth was, was one of the first exonerees using uh, this DNA evidence. And he was actually on death row at one point in time. So you can see the segue here. Uh, not only did I start with a moral problem with the death penalty, but my work on the Innocence Project was really showing me that, uh, in fact, our system was highly flawed, Uh, sometimes leading to people being put on death row who were innocent, Mm -hmm. uh, and how could we as a society turn our eye to these kinds of problems? So you felt a sort of moral outrage at what you felt was injustice being committed in your name um, through having first worked as an intern for the ACLU and then having gotten involved in an innocence project. Is that a fair recapitulation of your path to... Uh, advocating for criminal justice reform? I think that's right. But the the key here, I think, too, is that um, as I learned more and more about these uh, cases where someone had been uh, wrongly incarcerated, Mm -hmm. lots of things come out when you read these cases. Prosecutorial misconduct, uh, police misconduct, tampering with the evidence, fabricating evidence, uh, not disclosing... um, evidence to the defense, uh, rigging a photo lineup in such a way that uh, it's it's pointing unfairly at the person who was wrongly incarcerated. It's just on and on and on. The lack Mm. of resources available to public defenders. And and it really started Mm. to make me have this bigger sense that there were many imperfections in the criminal justice system. Interesting. And so now you're a delegate. And you're actually taking action. Um, And you're doing so representing District 20. Now, would you say that criminal justice is an issue that matters a lot to the constituents of District 20? Or is it one that is driven mostly by your own conscience? 
I would say it impacts the uh, residents of District 20 and the state in many ways. So whether they know it or not, uh, they are supportive. And I'll give you an example. You know, we spend uh, more money on our incarceration in Maryland than we do on every single community college and state college combined. Hmm. So it is literally the case that we're funding jails, not schools. Uh, in Maryland. And how do your constituents feel about that? I think most people would be alarmed when they hear this statistic. And when you frame it in those terms for your constituents, do you feel as though they support your work? Oh yeah, 100%. I mean, this is one of these issues. Like, if you were to ask people two years ago when I ran for office uh, what was at the top of their mind in terms of problems in Maryland, I don't think the first thing out of their mouth is going to be our prison population. Uh, But when I go and talk to them at the doors and uh, through e-communications, in fact, they were quite sympathetic once I explained what the problem was and what I was trying to do. I think today, uh, fast forward to the present, there is a much larger understanding that these are issues, and I think it's been heavily driven uh, by the police brutality issue taking prominence, the Black Lives Matters protests, um, and they've really elevated not just police brutality, but all of the underlying injustices in our criminal justice system. So we're approaching the end of our podcast, and I'd like to ask you a final question, which is to reflect upon your lifetime of public service, not only as a delegate, but as an activist, as a journalist, as an attorney. I'd like to ask you to think about all the things that you've done to make the world a better place and take a moment and share with our listeners why it is that you've done this. What drives you each and every morning, and how has that evolved over the course of your life to date? I mean, to be perfectly honest, I've been fairly consistently obsessed with pursuing projects that advance social and economic justice. Um, I mean, when I was in college and high school, uh, I did a lot of activism, and that never ended. And pretty much every summer when I was looking for internships, I would intentionally choose a different subject matter so that I would be grounded and knowledgeable about a range of things. I worked on um, uh, women's rights at some points in time. I worked on voting rights at other points in time, criminal justice reform, uh, and so on. And that's really been my passion. I mean, in the 90s, when I was in college and I was interning at the ACLU, I remember telling my supervisor that if Maryland would pass death penalty repeal, marriage equality, um, that those were such impossible or uh, improbable things that, that I could retire as an advocate and, and feel <laughs> satisfied that like lots had gotten done. Have you and, kept in touch with him? Uh, yes. <laughs> you know, little, Is he still working? She. She. Um, uh, no, she retired, actually. Oh, there yeah, you go. Yeah. Pigs do fly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but it's, it's amazing. I mean, uh, and, I, and I'm really proud to have worked on uh, or managed campaigns for a lot of the key people that were responsible for those victories uh, and my work with the groups that um, helped those over the finish line. And I, I actually never thought I would actually get to play a part in things like that. Really? You never thought you would get elected? I thought it was, you know, Montgomery County only emerged as a majority-minority community um, in the last few years. 
And I had... For our listeners who can't see you, how is that relevant to you? So, I'm Asian American. Uh Um, And, you know, growing up, you don't really see any Asian Americans in uh, politics. And so, uh, I had always had the sense that in America, if you wanted to succeed politically, you you would have a huge advantage if you were black or white, Mm -hmm. um, since there were uh, much larger... Uh, populations of those communities in places like Montgomery County, hmm. um, and I, that started to change once uh, I saw other candidates run and win who uh, were from very diverse backgrounds. So that has been Delegate David Moon of District 20 in Montgomery County, Maryland, who speaks about a lifetime passion that has spanned decades of commitment as an advocate to issues across the spectrum, from criminal justice to women's issues, from the war on ending the war on drugs to uh, uh, ending the death penalty and advancing marriage equality. David Moon has long been an advocate and has found fulfillment in his work in, in advancing the most progressive issues of our time uh, and in, in representing one of the most progressive dis- districts in the East Coast. Uh, He's able to take his lifetime of advocacy to the next level as an elected official. So, David, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And this has been Episode 83 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. Thanks for joining us, and we will talk to you next time.